Welcome to Moments in Leadership, a podcast where you will hear firsthand about the careers of senior military leaders as they share their own unique and individual experiences. Moments in Leadership will immerse you in real-life stories where you will learn about the challenging situations these accomplished leaders faced and discover the lessons they learned early in their careers that were the most influential to developing their overall leadership style. And now, here's your host, retired Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel David B. Armstrong. Welcome to Moments in Leadership. In this episode, I interview recently retired Marine Corps Lieutenant General Mark Brilakis. He's a graduate of Franklin and Marshall College and was commissioned in 1981 as an artillery officer. Over his career, Lieutenant General Berlakis served in a wide range of assignments, including artillery tours in the 10th Marines and several other leadership roles and commands, such as the Commanding General of 3rd Marine Expeditionary Brigade, the Deputy Commanding General of 3MEF, and the Commanding General of the 3rd Marine Division. Over the course of this interview, we discuss his time as Lieutenant, his combat experience in Beirut, and how that moment shaped his early leadership philosophy and taught him about the seriousness of the decisions and the choices that leaders make in this business. As we transition off the subject of young leadership, Lieutenant General Berlakis recommends a book by Leon Uris titled Battle Cry, which chronicles the story of men at war through the eyes of the enlisted Marines in World War II. General Berlakis spends a great deal of time over the course of the entire interview speaking about the importance of empathy in leaders and how he found himself on the wrong end of a serious counseling due to some misplaced empathy. And he uses that story to talk about the three pitfalls young leaders face when they first enter service and command. We discuss what happens to leaders who make wrong decisions and the differences between the mistakes that are made through simple bad choices versus those that are made by doing something on purpose or with total disregard to either regulations or commander's intent. He punctuates this point by sharing a really personal story of the time that he received a non-punitive letter of caution as a young officer, which I found amazing because he became a three-star general. He talks about his leadership style and how it matured over time and how general officers actually become the institution and focus on making big institutional decisions versus the decisions that he had to make as a lieutenant and a captain, which were much more about tactics, his Marines, and his unit. He shares experiences in his recruiting time and discusses changes that were made at the institutional level to increase the quality of female recruits coming into the Marine Corps, while using that as an example to show how good the Marine Corps is as a learning organization. I then ask him to share his thoughts on the traits shared by officers who have failed, and his answer was not the standard bullshit, non-committal, hiding from the question sort of answer. Be sure to check that section out. It's completely unfiltered and straightforward, which should be no surprise to anyone who knows him, and was exactly what I wanted in an answer. Interestingly, he takes the question a step further and spends some time talking about some of the causes of failure at the general officer level, which is certainly not something you hear about every single day. He shared with me the outcome of a study on empathy within different services and military communities. While no one would assume the Marine Corps scored the best, the highest scoring community was certainly not a group you would assume that would come out on top. As I edited this podcast, it was clear to me that his answers to my questions were so compelling, I simply wanted to keep asking more. You'll notice I say as a final question three times and keep asking questions. It was just that this interview could have gone on for six hours. But one of the most fascinating parts of this interview comes at the very end when we discuss the revocation of the don't ask, don't tell policy. So with no further ado, here's my interview with retired Marine Corps Lieutenant General Mark Brolakis. 
Welcome, Lieutenant General Mark Berlakis, to Moments in Leadership. I'm really happy that you agreed to come on. It's it's great to have an artilleryman on here. And, you know, geez, a, a, an accomplished three-star general in the artillery community. Really exciting to talk about some of your career and how you started out in the Marine Corps. So thanks for the time. I, you know, I'm, I'm interested to start out by just asking you, tell me about Mark Berlakis, second lieutenant. Who was he? And then who was first Lieutenant Mark Berlakis the day before he pinned on captain? Okay, great. David, thanks very much for having me. This is really a great concept, and uh, I really appreciate uh, you bringing me on board and allowing me to have a conversation with you about leadership. And uh, I served 38 years uh, on active duty in the United States Marine Corps, and that question you asked takes me way, way back. So I was a kid from northern New Jersey, and uh, I went off to school in Pennsylvania. And I came to the Marine Corps simply because I got a postcard in the mail. And uh, the postcard offered me a poster if I submitted a little bit of information and then followed up with a phone call. And then after about eight or nine yeses, I found myself at Officer Candidate School in Quantico, Virginia. So I was uh, was a student athlete in college. I played a little uh, ball and... uh, was a member of a fraternity and you know did some of those things. I went to OCS after my uh, this after my freshman year in college. I was in the platoon leaders class, which is a, a unique Marine Corps program. I, I enjoyed it. After my junior year in college, I went and did the same thing, and uh, they offered me a scholarship or not a scholarship, excuse me, my commission in the spring of my senior year. So that summer, I commissioned in the Marine Corps and went to the basic school in Quantico, like all Marine second lieutenants do. I don't think I was any different than any other lieutenant. I was uh, I was a baby boomer. Now looking back on it, having the experience of many different generations in the Marine Corps and generations count, I found out that uh, I probably had few expectations. I was prepared to do what I was asked to do and told to do. So I started out. I learned early on that I and something I th- I think is important is that the book matters. Uh, and what you, and when I refer to the book, it's either the book of regulations, the book of tactics techniques or procedures. And I kind of went into the Marine Corps with that attitude. And I came out of both the basic school and uh, the basic field artillery cannoneer officer program, kind of looking the same way. So I arrived at at the Fleet Marine Force down at Camp Lejeune in the 2nd Marine Division with that kind of outlook. It's managed to serve me well. It doesn't mean that you're an automaton. But what you find out is there are rules in place and the reasons why we do certain things are often because they've been developed from the through the school of hard knocks and that we have a lot of rules now. And I found that from Second Lieutenant Berlakis all the way to Lieutenant General Berlakis, I found out that we have a lot of rules and, and a lot of regulations just simply because somebody at some point in time was not smart enough to follow the rules and did something so stupid that somebody said, you know, there ought to be a law. And so they came up with a law to deal with it. But I also found that following the book and how you approach your duties in the field, your technical and your tactical requirements probably ends up leading you to the best solutions in what you're doing. There's so much that was made up when I was a youngster and I graduated from the school at Fort Sill and I started out in in the operating forces. I started to find out that there was a lot that was not being done according to the book. It was the school way or then the fleet way. And I think you probably heard that that also when you were when you were a young officer as well. 
that uh, things just didn't apply or there's shortcuts that made things faster, easier, better. And more often than not, that necessarily wasn't the case. So, you know, I kind of proceeded along trying to follow the book. It served me well. Doesn't mean that I didn't make mistakes. Didn't mean that I was not overly enthusiastic from time to time, but it served me pretty well. Was that hard as a lieutenant to come in brand new into the artillery community? And and for those of us who know the artillery community, know it's very technical and there are a lot of rules and there's there are workarounds, but it always increases the danger of what we're doing. For those of you not familiar with the artillery community, there is a lot of work that goes into taking a hundred pound projectile and getting it 10 or 15 miles down into a training area and having it safely, well, <laughs> from our perspective, safely land. But I'm wondering what it was like uh, to say that you were going for the book solution, but you're coming in as a brand new second lieutenant and there's all those people in your battery that have a lot more experience than you. And probably some of them even combat vets at that point from Vietnam. How hard was it to be a rule follower as a second lieutenant and not get swayed by the, oh, well, this is the way it's always been done, Lieutenant Burlakis? Mm, yeah. No, it can be tough. And there are a number of things that you 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 looked at and you watched. Now, I started out as a, as a uh, forward observer, so I spent an awful lot of time on my own. I had a few young Marines that uh, I was responsible for and radio operators, but for the most part, you know, the things that I did were collateral duties in and around, whether it was taking care of the armory or the motor pool or the various things. The, the, the advantage to that was, for the most part, you were left alone to do those things on your, especially in garrison. And so you were responsible to the commander, but, and you had folks that helped you out, but for the most part, you were doing the things that you should do, you felt you should do, and you had objectives that you, you, had to, uh, you had to accomplish. So in pursuing those, there were times where I would run into resistance. This is not the way we do, or this is not the way we have done things. I was obstinate enough and confident enough that there were times where I said, I understand how you do things, but this is the way I believe we should be doing things, and we're going to do it this way, and we're going to see how it works out. And I was able to convince any individuals. Because, you know, when I was going through OCS, Officer Candidate School, and then the base school, you know, the definition of leadership is very simple. It's influencing people in such a way as to accomplish the mission. That was it. So influencing, there's a lot of different elements to influencing. And uh, I was fairly successful in influencing people to see things the way I wanted to do things. I mean, I remember... I, I joined the battery, and about six weeks after I joined the battery, we got on ship, and we headed over to Europe uh, for a NATO exercise. And so I found myself in Denmark, and the exercise started out, and the, you know the we got into the field, and we're about to start the first morning of the exercise. And that night I went around, and I got uh, eight Marines, and I said, okay, at uh, zero whatever thirty, we're going to meet. At this, you know, behind the executive officer's uh, position, and uh, we're going to prepare for security patrol. And they looked at me like I had <laughs> a second head on my shoulders. And but if you come out of school, you understand that you know part of the uh, site security is to actually physically occupy the space and patrol. And so. I ended up with these eight guys, I think it was seven. Uh, one of them didn't believe me, so we had to roust him out of his out of his sleeping bag. Uh, we got them all together. We had our little inspection. I told them what the route was, et cetera. 
And uh, they were skeptical looks all the way around because I don't think that Marines had ever done this in the field. We, one of the lieutenants was giving me a hard time because, you know, I was, the new, I was the new guy and I was following the book. And the Marines went out and they had a blast. They had a really good time. They'd never done it before, but they got to do this infantry Marine kind of thing that nobody expected that they'd be able to do. Your battery commander must have been impressed that a new lieutenant was getting out there and getting that done. My battery commander at that time was an interesting character. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, there was some skepticism among all the officers. But when the Marines came back and they started talking about how much fun they had, et cetera, and, you know, they're hoping they were going to do it the next morning. And I had to let them know that I was going to pick a different eight folks because we needed to spread the experience. But, yeah, I mean, it helped, I guess. But he, he had a lot of things he was dealing with. Well, it's it's interesting because I I noticed in your bio that that you had done a a deployment to Beirut in the early eighties. Yeah. Doing the quick math, I'm assuming you were still a lieutenant when that deployment happened. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I deployed. I, I came back from the NATO deployment, and then uh, we went to Fort Bragg for a uh, firing exercise and a couple other things, and then I was transferred from Bravo Battery over to Charlie Battery, who was making the deployment with uh, the 24th Marine Amphibious Unit. I went in as Nick, the new guy. I was the last officer to join the, the, the uh, battery. And I, the only reason I think I went was because my staff platoon commander from the basic school was the battery commander for Char Charlie Battery. And I went into his office and I asked him if I could go because I knew he needed an officer. And he said, hey, I only got one slot and you're the, you'll be the Naval Gunfire Spot Team Leader. Uh, and I said, that's fine. I'd be more, you know, that's, I want to do that because I want to make the deployment. So I went out as part of Charlie Battery, 1st Battalion, 10th Marines, which is attached to Battalion Landing Team, 1st Battalion, 8th Marines, as part of the 24th Marine Amphibious Unit. And I went as the, I had to go to school to learn how to shoot naval gunfire and then uh, came back, kind of joined the battery late. I was part of the Shorefire Control Party, which is made up of about 12 Marines and one sailor went out and uh, made the deployment. What was going on in Beirut at that time? Well, from the civil war that had gone on between the Christians and the Islamic factions in, uh, in Lebanon, uh, it created a great deal of instability in uh, Lebanon. And the Israelis were being affected by the war that was going on in Lebanon. And so the Israelis, I think it was in 82 conducted an operation which led them all the way up to Beirut, and they occupied uh, the southern part of Lebanon. This could be a whole podcast unto itself, but suffice it to say that after a decision to evacuate the Palestinian, significant portions of the Palestinian Liberation Organization from Lebanon, that was the first intervention by the Marine Corps during that period, the Marines then left and then there was a, a massacre in two of the refugee camps that were both Israel and one of the uh, Christian factions were, were implicated. And President Reagan at that time made a commitment to send a multinational peacekeeping force that was made up of Americans, Italians, and French and British contingents. And the Marine Corps had been rotating its contingent out for a period of time. And the 24th Marine Amphibious Unit arrived in the spring of 83, and that was right after the bombing of the U.S. Embassy in Beirut. So you were with the 2-4, I guess it was Marine Amphibious Unit at the time. Probably they were still calling it that. 
And so you went in and relieved the 22nd Marine Amphibious Unit. No, we were actually the ones that got bombed. You were with the 22nd Mew. No, the 22nd Mew was there when the embassy was bombed. And then the 24th Marine Expeditionary Unit was there, or Amphibious Unit was there in October of 1983 when the barracks was attacked. So you were there when you were part of that Marine Amphibious Unit. That's correct. I want to set the question up because I think everybody listening has probably seen the the scene out of Saving Private Ryan when Tom Hanks' character in the very beginning on the beach is sending the groups of three to charge the machine gun nest and they just keep getting them. He keeps seeing the, the his soldiers slain through that little mirror that he was looking around the corner. I feel like that was one of those scenes that really did a great job of conveying the gravity of command and the influence and the responsibility of command. And I'm wondering if this was the first time in your career, or and if it wasn't, tell me about the other time, where you fully realized the gravity of command of Marines or any American fighting men and women in combat. I got that experience early in my, in my career. I lost five Marines in the, in the barracks bombing. I was the guy who put the Marines there. Those individuals were placed there because I had a team of observers and radio operators that served at the headquarters, maintaining the radio links, working for the liaison officer. You know, being at the headquarters was not considered to be a bad deal. Uh, you had better chow, you had roof over your head, regular shower hours, so it wasn't a bad deal. And all you had was radio watch rather than guard duty, which was an experience for the Marines that were back in the battery area. So I, I would move individuals in and out from that position. But on that day, on that morning, the Marines that I had placed there were killed, with the exception of one Marine who was up on the roof standing his watch, and he rode the roof all the way down, and he was seriously injured. Survived. Matter of fact, he and I spoke just a couple of days ago. So they died. All right. One lived. None of them were uh, 20 years old yet. So I got a real good lesson at that particular point on the choices that you make in this business and what those implications are. And the fact is, from, from time to time, you'll make decisions uh, where individuals live or individuals die. And it's a big lesson for a kid who's 25 years old at the time. And those decisions that affect people multiply as, as time goes on. You know, what programs move forward, which loses funding, who gets relieved for cause, Marines and officer judicial decisions, who's volunteered for what duties. You know, in another occasion, when I was a battery commander, I had a young Marine, good kid. And uh, it was the next unit that was going on a Mediterranean deployment. And there's a draft that goes around the regiment. And I had to find five Marines that would go from my battery to join this other battery to make the deployment. And it was, wasn't a bad deal. Marines were, you know, generally volunteered for it. And this Marine volunteered and he'd done a good job. So I had no reason to say no. So I sent him off. And he went off and he went off that deployment. And about eight months later, I found out that he had died in Operation Desert Storm in combat, servicing his weapon, and he was killed in an accident on the gun line. So, you know, that was a decision a long time ago that eventually led to a young man's death, and he had a wife and he had a child. And, and so, you know, whether you make a decision right then and there where Tom Hanks was, you know, looking in the mirror and sending guys up and seeing what was going on, but they had to take that position. You know, there were thousands of soldiers that were waiting to move out 
and they were being held up by that one position. So he had to keep sending people into that cauldron. To me, who had to decide between 10 folks, which, which five were going to serve in the barracks headquarters without, you know, with no idea what was going to happen, was going to happen. And then after that, you have to move forward. You know, you, you grieve, but eventually you've got to come down on the side on whether or not you actually had control or whether or not this was just the fate that was laid out for these individuals. I've become good friends with a younger officer who's still serving on active duty that saw a lot of combat in Sangin. And he recently posted something that I thought was extremely well thought out and sage because it dealt with the emotions of having relationships with the men that you're men, men and women that you're leading. And I may slaughter this a little bit, but I'll get most of it right. He said, you know, I am not friends with the men and women that I'm leading because I don't ask my friends to walk point when we're on patrol. I can't be friends. I can care for them. I can have relationships with them, but I, I can't be friends with them. I can be friends with them afterwards, but not while I am in command. And I just thought, wow, you know, I had never heard anybody say anything like that before. It really resonated with me because I'm, I'm the kind of person who, who wants to have relationships with everybody that I deal with, but there are certain instances where you can't. And so I'm wondering, based on your experience when you were a lieutenant in Beirut and your experience with making that decision, and of course, you, you never know what you don't know, and you, you made that clear, do you have anything that you can tell a young leader who's listening to this right now that can prepare them for those inevitable moments that they will probably face as a leader. You know, and it's just not decisions on whether or not you send them into combat and they face mortal danger. You know, it could be the fact that you've just got to get something done. You have dirty jobs. There are things that need to be done and need to be accomplished. I don't regret the decisions I made. You know, there are times mm -hmm. where I regret the outcome. I always regret the outcome. But those are the choices that you make are, being, are part of being a Marine leader. Overall, being a service member in any of the services is a hard life, and there are times when it's brutal and dirty and unforgiving, and young men, young men and young women die. Uh, and I think that was the experience of the individual that you're talking about. You've got to make those decisions because they're important. You know, the issue of friendship is an interesting one, okay? And I think part of it goes to how do you define friend and what is a friend? I've got a younger brother and everybody's his friend. But for me, as far as a friend goes, it's a very close relationship. I don't have a, a wide group of folks that I consider friends. I, I have a lot of acquaintances. And the Marines who died in Beirut on that day, I liked them. I sailed with them. I'd live with them. We'd work together. We'd train together. You get to know them, you know, about their parents and their sisters and if they're married you know, their wives and their kids. And, and, and you can like the individuals, but they're not necessarily your friends. You're not prepared to loan them money or you're not ready to raise their children if something goes on. But you can like your Marines. You can feel an affinity for them and you can feel a responsibility towards them. But that should not get in the way of your being able to make the very difficult choices of either pointing them on point or... Uh, assigning them to a difficult duty or, you know, or transferring them from your organization to another because it's in the best interest of the Marine Corps or the unit or whatever. I got to know the parents of the Marines that I lost to an extent, and I met some of their sisters and siblings, and it's always very bittersweet 
very poignant. You're the last person that saw their son or daughter alive, and they want to know everything they can possibly get about that. And it's important that you have some sort of investment in the individuals you lead because it is a people business. We don't lead automatons. We lead young men and women who have volunteered to serve their nation, and they deserve your very best. They deserve your respect. They deserve your best effort. And, you know, you can form an emotional attachment, but one of those things that you always, always happened, always pays back is familiarity breeds contempt. So if you get too familiar, and this is always a danger for young officers, you get into an organization and you got people you're responsible for and you want them, you want them to like you. And you go start doing things that the book has told you is probably not the right thing to go about doing. And pretty soon you're compromised because the individuals either don't do what it is that you want done or do it in the manner that you want it done or should be done, et cetera. And you start getting a lot of flack. And quite frankly, at that point, you're just ineffective. I'll bet you it's harder even as a corporal and a sergeant because you probably grew up with a lot of the guys. And then all of a sudden you're a corporal and now you're in charge of your friends. I suspect it could be a little bit more challenging even for corporals and sergeants. But I think as a young officer, it's probably easy to fall into those traps of trying to get people to like you by doing the things that compromise you because you're trying so hard to establish some credibility or some sort of leadership. And that's the path of least resistance when you're a brand new second lieutenant walking into your platoon is how do I make these guys like me? Guys, non-gender specific. You're from Northern Jersey. You know what I mean when I say guys. <laughs> uh, and, and I bet you that's a real challenge. I don't have an answer. I don't have uh, a recommendation. I'm kind of hoping maybe you do. What, what would you tell a brand new lieutenant about, geez, here's something I remember that I did when I was a lieutenant that was very successful in making sure that I had that right relationship with my, my men and my artillery battery. So I, was, I spent a lot of time reading histories when I was a kid. And one of, probably one of the things that led me to the Marine Corps when I got that postcard was the fact that I'd spent a lot of time reading about the Pacific, et cetera. There, you know, there are a number of books that you read and things that you, you learn by doing as far as that goes. And I was really fortunate to read a book called uh, Battle Cry by Leon Uris, one of his earlier books. And Leon Uris, a great American author, uh, also a United States Marine, who wrote of his experiences. I'd found this book in college at a book sale. They were charging a quarter of a pound for books that they were thinning out the stacks. And I got this book and I read it. And it's it's really a great book. And if you're a if you are a young leader, especially if you're a young Marine, it's a great book to read because it, although it is fiction, it talks to a large degree about leadership and the cost of leadership, et cetera. But you know, my advice would be that. And this is advice you get at the basic school and at Fort Sill as well, because they all talk to you about when you show up. Because, you know, the Marine Corps' focus is taking young officers and putting in the operating forces and putting them in front of Marines, right? The big deal is, you know, leadership is a huge thing in the Marine Corps. It's something you talk about every step of the way. And so by the time you're going to show up at your first, your first unit, you're just wondering exactly what Marines are they going to put you in front of and, and how you're going to do. And it's a big consideration. And to say that you don't lose any sleep thinking about that first day when you go in and you meet your platoon or your section or whatever, you know, you do. It's pretty intimidating. And I ended up going into a headquarters platoon of about 50 some Marines in radio men, fire direction control men, wire men, motor transport. It was a, you know, it's a cook's breakfast of uh, MOSs and individuals. 
And it's interesting because during the day they all work for somebody else, right? It's a headquarters unit. So you're, you're, you're doing and keeping a track on all sorts of folks that you don't necessarily have direct control of day in and day out. But I had a platoon sergeant who was, had been around the Marine Corps for a while, probably at that time, Marine Staff Sergeant, 14 or 15 years of service, probably an alcoholic at that particular point. But he had a good relationship with the Marines and he had a good hand with the Marines. And, you know, I'd listened to all the lessons and I told you, I kind of found that the rule book made a lot of sense to me. So when people told me that, hey, you, you know, the most important relationship you build starting out is with your platoon sergeant. Okay, that's the one you got to focus on. If you spend a whole lot of time trying to get to know all your Marines really, really right out the gate, you're going to have a problem because you should be focusing your effort on your platoon sergeant and developing that kind of relationship. And he was larger than life and loud and talkative. He's from he's from Boston. And so um, he and I spent some time together and we went through early on a couple of things that came up. And it was one of those ones where I was more than willing to listen to everything that he had to say. He always got the opportunity to say everything that he wanted, what he thought, et cetera. And then I would make a decision. And he was old core enough to know that when the lieutenant made a decision, the decision was made and he was going to carry it out. Um, so I was very fortunate. I was very fortunate the individual who I was working with. And then over time, you get to know the Marines. You're exposed to the Marines. You have to counsel the Marines. Then they start to get to know you, you get to know them, you observe them, you have inspections. We had an IG inspection right before we went on deployment, which was just a drag. Actually, that was after the deployment, before I left and went over to the other unit. But I'll tell you, I knew that I had made it as a platoon leader when I was, we were on ship and we were just getting ready to go in port about a day or two before we pulled into port. And I was in the stateroom and all of a sudden there was a knock on the hatch and it was my platoon sergeant. And he said, sir, we got a problem. And I said, okay, what do we got? And he mentioned one of the Marines, who's an NCO. And by the way, I agree with you. I think it's, it's probably harder for a, a young Marine who just made corporal or went from corporal to sergeant and is now leading his peers. They have a really tough time because they've been out drinking and hanging out and talking smack with each other. And all of a sudden, then they're in trouble. But so he, he came and he said, sir, we got a problem. And so one of these NCOs was doing something down in the birthing area that was making everybody very uncomfortable. Okay. I'll assume that this is a program for adults. So I'll talk a little bit more frankly. He was a compulsive, ma he was a compulsive masturbator. And he was compulsively masturbating in the birthing area, day, night, in front of the Marines, in the head, et cetera. And it was really starting to affect morale on the ship. So he said, sir, we got to, you know, you have to do something about this. Now, this is a platoon sergeant who had no problem saying, sir, don't worry about it. I got it. It's under control. I'll deal with the men. In this case, he was nonplussed. He had no way that he was going to deal with this particular issue. And quite frankly, I have to tell you, the lieutenant was a little bit confused at that particular point and what he was going to do about it. But I, I, I said, OK, let me think about it. I'll deal with it. You know, just keep the men under control at this point. And the other thing was, is this individual was no, he was no slob. He was a highly valued member for his technical skill, very important member of the organization. So it's not just one of those things that you put him, you know, you put him in a raft and send him over, you know, over the horizon. So we got ashore and we were in camp. Uh, we were waiting for the exercise to start. And I went out and I, and I went to my platoon sergeant and said, okay, tell this individual, come see me. So he came and he and I spent two hours, maybe three wandering around, 
me doing most of the talking and he doing most of the listening about his behavior. And this was a compulsion. I mean, and this was, this was 1982. This was well before division psychiatrists and social workers and some of the stuff we got going on. These are things that young lieutenants who have absolutely no background, no training had to deal with. Because uh, if you didn't, then it immediately went to a disciplinary issue, et cetera. It was not a behavior or, or topic that you really wanted to go to the battery commander to talk about or even the battalion commander as far as that goes. So we, he and I spent an awful lot of time and it was hard slogging. I talked to you about earlier about uh, your ability to influence and convince and man, I was working it hard. So after about two and a half hours, we separated. He said, thank you. I said, you know, good luck. And uh, I wandered on back. And later on, I ran into my platoon sergeant. He said, sir, how'd it go? I said, well, we'll see. You know, I talked to him about what we talked about and behaviors. And about two days after that, I was walking around with a couple of the officers. And uh, my platoon sergeant comes walking up. He's got a big smile on his face. And he says, sir, you did it. I said, what did I do? He said, well, I was out walking with some of the NCOs and we're out in the woods and we came across Joe Bag of Donuts and he was behind a tree and he was masturbating. And I said, okay, so how did I solve anything? He said, sir, it wasn't in the barracks and it wasn't in the shower. You did a great job. And those behaviors, that individual began to understand that those behaviors were not something that he needed to share with his peers and subordinates. So, yeah, there was, you know, small victories as far as that goes. But the fact was, is, you know, these are the things that will come up that you have to deal with. And if you get too familiar with your individuals and stuff, you just can't have those kind of discussions inside your organization. You have to be the individual who they, they know is in charge. If some shitty, nasty detail comes along that has to be done, they have to know that you're the one who directed that it be done. If they get saved from some horrible, crappy thing, they need to know that you're the one that saved them from it. And you can't do that by diving in the mosh pile and, you know, meeting them out in town to have a beer or whatever. It just won't work. So I think in my case, the book was actually pretty accurate in that there has to be some degree of separation. Now, that didn't mean that I didn't know the Marines, who they were, where they came from, what their problems were. But the fact was, is I led the platoon through my platoon sergeant. Uh, there was a mom and dad relationship with the Marines. They knew invariably one would try and play one off the other. And the, my platoon sergeant and I were very good at talking and making sure that we never got, pl got played. But it's hard. It's, it's, it really is a learning experience on a regular basis. The, one of the interesting things about talking to you is you retired as a three-star general. So I always like to say 100% of us start out as a second lieutenant and 1% of us ended up as a three-star <laughs> general, right? But you and I share this common ground in that we were both second lieutenants at some point in our career. And so for everybody listening, I am going to reinforce exactly what you said, which was, I think the most formative relationship I had in the Marine Corps was with my very first platoon sergeant. And I think it was so formative that it went on to crystallize my leadership style for my entire career. His name's Ed Garrison. He and I are still friends to this day. We play golf a couple times a year. Such a fantastic relationship, but I don't think that I would have had a successful career if it wasn't for the relationship that I formed with him, my very first platoon sergeant. And it's so critical. I'll go so far as to say for every failed officer that's out there, there's probably a bad platoon sergeant in his background in his early years. And for every great officer, mm -hmm. there's probably a great platoon sergeant in his background. And that relationship, I think, is so important. 
it's not my interview, so I'll tell the story really quickly. But I remember we were out in the field and I was around the back of a Humvee and my platoon sergeant was talking to my battery commander at the time. And I was so brand new. I think I'd been in the battery for two weeks when we went to the field. And I heard the battery commander ask Staff Sergeant Garrison at the time, how's Lieutenant Armstrong doing? And he goes, well, sir, he chewed my ass the other day, so he's not scared. He said, so I think he's going to be all right. And I was like, wow, okay. I would have never thought that a platoon sergeant would have said like, hey, the brand new second lieutenant kind of got in my ass on something. And that's, that's a positive sign. I think that my relationship with him was, was really important for young leaders out there right now, thinking through how they're going to stand in front of their platoon for the first time, or maybe they're in their platoon for the first time, or young NCOs. Those relationships are really, really important. Mm-hmm. Oh, without a doubt. There, there are. I mean, Mac... Who is my first platoon sergeant, Mac, right? It's old Marine Corps uh, nickname. He was important to me. I mean, he was important in my formation as an officer. I mean, Mac was, he had his shortcomings. He was the operations chief. Yeah, mine was too. He was supposed to know everything about gunnery and those things. And he really didn't. I mean, I he hadn't been to school since he'd been at the you know, his MOS producing school. So he he made up a bunch of things. Now, he got better because... I was a gunnery guy and I understood gunnery and I, you know, I got it. I learned the book and he and I spent a bunch of time going around and around until he started. I, one day I walked into the FDC, the fire direction center, and he's got the book open. I'm like, Mac, what are you doing? He said, well, you said something the other day and I was just looking it up, you know, because I, I wasn't familiar with it. And at that point I figured I'd had some success with, with Mac and, and it was important that I had him as my first platoon sergeant because I had others along the way that were different and not as good and created more of a challenge. But the relationship at that point helped me in the relationship I had with my first sergeant when I was a battery commander and my first sergeant major when I was a battalion commander, all the way up to my last sergeant major when I led uh, Marine Forces Command. So you know, all those things, you build upon them as you go along. Those experiences you get early are, are, are foundational. They're terribly, terribly important. You know, we were talking about young Marines and familiarity and all those other things. And, you know, in some of the, the pre, our earlier discussion, you asked about mistakes, et cetera. But this goes along the same line, and I don't want to forget it. Okay, again, I'm in Beirut. I've got responsibility for the motor pool. I've got the surefire control party that I'm dealing with. As far as those things go, we're doing training, et cetera. And I had a Marine who was going to be punished for something that I thought was Mickey Mouse. So so I perceived an injustice to the Marine. I got myself in a twist because of my advocacy for the young Marine. I thought that he was being unjustly punished. And it was really my fault because I failed to supervise and so I, I took it to a level of empathy for the individual that put me at cross purposes of my commander's responsibility and intent. And I got my particular ass chewing on several, at several levels between the executive officer who I had a lot of respect for and the battery commander who I owed a lot to. And um, I finally realized, I came out the other end of that, realizing that I had misplaced my loyalties and my judgment in that particular aspect. But I was fortunate because the battery commander was one of those guys who would get upset. He'd say 
very harsh things at the time, and he would very quickly forgive and move on. You know, there are a lot of pitfalls for young leaders. If you over-identify with your the Marines that you lead, if you forget the hierarchy of the organization that you're in, if you forget the prerequisites or the perquisites of your seniors and what they're trying to accomplish, it can be, become very uncomfortable for a young officer for all the right reasons. And when it was all said and done, I knew I was wrong. I knew I'd, I'd act foolishly, emotionally, and I'd identified too much with the Marines that were my particular responsibility. Obviously, you went on to become a lieutenant general, so your mistakes couldn't have been anything that ended your career. But to hear you talk about mistakes, I think, is, is so great for listeners because mistakes are, are relatable and they resonate with people. And lessons learned, I think, are some of the most important ways to convey leadership lessons learned to young officers because everybody can listen to or see a mistake. There's that old saying there, but for the grace of God, walk I. I'm sure everybody at some point in their career has said, oh, geez, thank God that wasn't me. But to turn those into formative experiences that get applied in the future are huge lessons learned. I'm wondering if there's any other mistakes or lessons learned from your early career. They could be technical or leadership or anything. And then how did you turn those into a positive for your leadership style? Well, we all make mistakes. I mean, you know, there's being wrong. There's making mistakes because you didn't account for a detail here, a detail there, and and not ending up with the same result. As I went on in the Marine Corps, it came down to omission and commission, all right? Were, were the mistakes because you didn't do something that you could have done and the things went awry, or did you do something on purpose, understanding what the outcome would be, but you did it anyways just because you had a disregard for law regulation or the intent of your commander. So I, yeah, I did a bunch of things that were wrong. They're probably more not smart than they were of evil intent. Yeah. Same deployment, Beirut. I got up, I was doing the same thing I did every day. And all of a sudden I made a mistake. And it was one of those ones where at the time I didn't think about, it was pretty stupid. What I had is I had an accidental discharge, you know, out in the open. Fortunately, I just wounded Lebanon, but there were more and more chances to do something and I could have hurt somebody. You know, I was stupid enough at the time, not even realize the gravity of what I had done. But that soon became apparent because it, it was grave to other people. Uh, and I soon found myself, you know, I, I went completely right past the XO and the battery commander without really comment, other than you need to go see the battalion XO. And I ended up in front of the battalion uh, landing team executive officer, who was a formidable individual, another Bostonian. I, I had a lot of emotional, deep emotional experiences with Bostonians early <laughs> in my career. I was standing tall in front of his desk, and I received a non-punitive letter of caution, uh, which was, at that point, for a kid who'd been uh, in the Marine Corps for about 18 months at that time. This is a significant emotional event because I'd been doing well. I'd been doing well. I'd been recognized uh, on occasion for doing well. And then all of a sudden, here I am. Somebody's handed me a piece of paper that says, you have fallen well short of our expectations. And so I got it and I turned around and 
You know, I went and sniffed in a corner for a while and I walked back up and I kept it. I have that letter today. And there have been times in my career where I pulled it out and I would reread it just to help ground me to understand that at any particular time, you could either do something really, really dumb, not intending to do anything bad that could put you in grave harm when it came to how you view yourself or how the institution views you. That's a great segue. And I, and I don't want to get too far away from you, Lieutenant Tom, but I am going to use this as an opportunity to just jump forward in your career real quick, because having had that experience at your 18-month mark as a lieutenant, where you're trying to do everything right, because most likely you're doing a lot of things wrong. So you, the things you want to do right, you really want to be doing right. You're in combat, you have an accidental discharge. That, that's a huge no-no then, now, but then you went on to become a general. So not career-ending. So I'm curious, did that moment as a lieutenant getting a non-putative letter of caution shape future decisions that you made either as a colonel, a commander as a colonel, maybe as a general officer, where you looked at the mistakes of other junior people and said, yeah, but, and you remembered back to how essentially you were given a second chance. Did that shape you as a general officer in affording people second chances, maybe promotion board or fitness reports that you were doing or commanders that you had underneath you when you were in 06? I don't think that it cannot have some impact. I mean, there are a number of times in my career where I had, you know, aha moments on, on military justice or, you know, what is right in dealing, what's, what's fair and what's not. There's a number of different things that can go on. I mean, I, I remember coming as a battalion commander coming out of the, off the fire, uh, we were 29 Palms. So I come out of the desert and back up to Camp Wilson. And I grabbed one of my battalion, uh, one of my battery commanders and I put him and we went into the, the Comelec container that we had there for our, our comm maintenance guys. And, you know, you, I turned around, he and I went inside and I, I closed the door and locked it. And then I proceeded to completely lose my shit on this individual who was doing really dumb stuff. Really just, but, you know, wasn't going to do it in public, but evidently, you know, those, those maintenance shelters are not necessarily soundproof. But that was it. I mean, I needed to make an impression on the individual, and I did. I'd seen other guys that had done the same stuff that got relief for cause at that particular point in time. They were done, packed up, and, uh, and, and you know, on an airplane back. And that was not the choice that I made at that particular point in time. I did not believe the individual was venal. And he was doing anything he was trying to do to help, to hurt people. I just don't think he was paying attention. So it was my job to help him understand that he needed to start paying attention to details. Another time, again, as a battalion commander, I had a Marine that was coming in front of me because he had gotten a Dear John letter. And he went out, he, then he proceeded to get liquored up. And then he proceeded to start throwing his furniture off the third deck of the barracks in an inebriated state. And uh, I was sitting there reading the package, going to have the proceedings a little bit later on that day. So I made, it, I made it a point to read everything prior to it and everything. So I'm reading that thing. And as I'm reading it, I hearken back to a time when I was in college and uh, a number of my fraternity brothers had managed to get themselves all liquored up and tossed a soda machine off the fourth deck of one of the housing units at school. So I started to ponder that. And I started to try and make connections between this young Marine who had received probably the worst news that he'd received in his life at that particular time. And his response compared to the chuckleheads that I went to school with 
who just did it because. And then I realized that the only difference between myself when I was at college and this young Marine who's about to come in and have his worst experience of his life mm-hmm. was the Uniform Code of Military Justice. We were all the same age. I went to college. We had Barney Fife as a police force. Nobody really had any rules to follow or enforce the rules. But this individual had the weight of federal law that was about to come crashing down on him. So when it was all said and done, two things occurred. One, the Marine was found guilty for acting improperly. And I think he paid a $100 fine. Then he got along. He got a talking to about, you know, what, what is right and what is wrong. What he did was wrong. But what he did was understandable in the context of what had occurred to him. And that helped to form my understanding or my beliefs in military justice, which first and foremost needs to be just. <laughs> That's a great way to say it. A lot of occasions it's not. Some of it is by rote, and that's fine. The Secretary of Navy can always direct commanders to do a certain thing with a certain outcome based upon the violation of the code, drugs, you know, a number of those things. But for the most part, commanders have discretion in the administration of discipline and punishment. Too often we see guys with the bigger the hammer, the better. In my career, as I went through it, I started to realize that that was probably not the best way to deal with a number of the issues we have. And that carried on to officers as well. Although, for, you know, for me, there's a much finer point when you're dealing with commissioned officers. One, because they're older, they're better educated. They are told from the beginning that they have a place in the organization of uh, increased trust and authority. And the abuse of that you know, can result in you know, significantly more uh, higher cost as far as that goes. But uh, yeah, there were plenty of times in my career where I took those experiences and then those epiphanies and carried them forward as I dealt with individuals who had either failed to meet the standard. And again, the question really was, is did you fail because you were either unaware or you'd not done all the work that you should have done before things went bad, or were you just lazy or venal? I mean, you did it because. I mean, you you violated the you violated the laws because you lied, cheated, or still because it was more convenient at the time. The comment that you made about holding the officers to a higher standard is is an interesting one. I'm not going to say anything earth shattering here, but when you evaluate other officers, I think one of the one of the most important reasons to hold the evaluation of an officer to a higher standard is because an incompetent officer will get people killed, not only in combat, but in training. So incompetent officers who are making bad decisions, you got to be looking at their proficiency. You got to be looking at their ability to make sound decisions, the ownership of their decisions that they make. And I suppose to a certain extent, their economy of language. But the decision-making is such an important topic that we could spend a few minutes on too, because you've probably seen a lot of decision-making taking place in your career. As a general, you got to see decision-making way underneath you. And you also got to see decision-making horizontally with other general, three-star generals and, and obviously the one and two stars as well. But decision-making isn't a binary thing. I think when officers have to make a decision, there are very little rules that dictate how to make a decision in every single case. And so that's when you're really relying on somebody's instinct, their experience, and their intelligence 
to look at risk and say, if I take a decision to do X, the probability of that resulting in death or injury is very low, but it exists. Versus if I don't take this decision, the risk to, could be very, very low, but am I actually accomplishing anything having to do with training the Marines for the ultimate test, which is combat? And I just wonder if you have some experience or thoughts on, has that changed in the Marines? Has our decision-making got more central to risk aversion and career protection? Are we bringing the decision-making level down to such a thing where the decisions being made are actually impacting our ability to do what we need to do at the time that it matters the most, which is in combat? And are we holding accountable the officers' decisions when they make bad decisions? There's a lot of them in the press right now. Are we seeing an institutional problem? And I don't want to get too far off in the Marine Corps, but bring it back to like officer decision-making. What's been some of the experiences that you've witnessed with decision-making that could be a learning point for, for younger officers or even officers halfway through their career? Wow, that's big. Okay, so- I got off on a little bit of a tangent there. No, I think, I mean, early on in the question, you know, one of the things that you, you, you talked about is decisions that can either impact individuals or what you're trying to accomplish. So you're talking about risk to mission, risk to force, right? So in tactical terms, as you go forward and, and you take a look at a course of action and what you're going to try and do, uh, what is the risk to the force? What is the physical risk to the individuals that will be ordered to go do this thing compared to the risk of the mission? And you'll find over time, over history, when you get to those things where you've got to have the objective, then the risk to force becomes less of a consideration. I mean, the guy who decided, mm, we're going to take Tarawa, you know, God, we're taking that rock. Well, that was a rock in the middle of nowhere. So, but in terms of the campaign that started at Cartwheel and Guadalcanal and then started to move its way all the way up to Central Pacific to get to wherever it was, that particular island meant something. And so the decision is, what's the risk to the overall mission against the risk to force? When you're talking about training and peacetime, then you the, the scale tips, right? It's a seesaw. And so risk to force is always a pretty big consideration. And I'm not saying in wartime, you never consider the risk to force. Of course you do. But mission is one of those things, right? It's people first, mission always, you know, that kind of comment. And in those decisions that you make, you have to balance the two. And then there are other decisions you make. There's policy decisions you make where you you quite frankly could impact a lot of Marines. And part of the challenge when you're a senior guy, very senior, and you're involved in policy discussions, there's a lot of things that people will bring up that affects a person, right? I ran across this Marine and he had his family and this was going on. It didn't seem quite right. And so I need you to fix this. Okay. And you go in and you take a look at it and you realize if you fix it for the one, you got to be able to fix it for the thousand. Mm -hmm. Okay. But for the thousand, it's not really an issue, but it's an issue for the one. And so you had the decisions that you make that are seemingly fairly innocuous that will get your peers outraged because you didn't exceed to the, to, to the one rather than to the many. And everybody has to have those kind of, kind of considerations and those experiences. And, and quite frankly, those experiences can be very uneven in senior levels. You've got guys that made their bones because they're tacticians or whatever. You've got guys that made it because 
they're good policy people or they can make, you know, they can turn water to wine or whatever administratively. You got other guys. And so it takes all kinds to mm -hmm. run a Marine Corps or an army or whatever. And so some of those decisions get across purposes with the desires of your peers uh, or your fellows and how you're trying to get those things accomplished. And those can be hard decisions as well. They're not life and death decisions, but they are decisions that can affect a lot of people. If you get drugged down to the onesies and twosies, it can be really a, a bit of a challenge. One thing I was thinking about when in prepping for this is, you know, my understanding of my place in the Marine Corps, you know, who was Mark Berlacus and what did he do in the Marine Corps changed a lot over time. And by the time I became a general officer, it was very, very little about me and almost everything about the Marine Corps. You become an institutional person because you spent an awful lot of time in, in the institution. And then the, the positions that you go in, you'll spend an awful lot of time making institutional decisions. Whereas when I was a, a lieutenant or a captain or whatever, you know, a battery commander, man, it's all about me. I'm just having a great old time and all this stuff is going on and, you know, or it was about my people, the people I was responsible for, right? Not just me, but me, the flag, the guide on and what was, what was encompassed in the, in the guide on. And as you become more and more senior in this thing, it becomes so much less about you. And I think the most successful senior leaders have that attitude because there are very few things that you do where you're not making a decision that affects either individuals, but more importantly, you know, large organizations and the way we do business. And I think that is, um, it's a critical understanding that individuals need to have because Many of the decisions I made as a two and a three star were based upon what I perceived to be in the best interest of the Marine Corps. Okay. I can make a decision that's good for a Marine, but if that decision is not good for all the Marines or a balance of the Marines, then that's not necessarily a good decision. And so you get further and further from the individual, which is hard because you spent a lot of your time dealing with individuals and, and advocating for them. And it doesn't mean that you don't care about individuals. I spend, I spend a hell of a lot more time as a senior officer talking to young Marines individually and in groups than I ever did uh, when I was a, a younger officer because, uh, you know, they're the ones that ground you. But you have to make decisions that may not necessarily advocate for individuals. I'll give you an example. I was out in down at Camp Lejeune, 2nd Amtrak Battalion, and I'm being shown all the adaptive manufacturing things that the 2nd Amtraks has done with, you know, printers, 3D printers, and steelwork and, and all the things that they're doing. So I'm sitting talking to the Marine who's like the lead sled. And so this is this is as a three-star general. I mean it's a three-star. So, you know, uh, you know, three-star gets to do all the fun things, right? You go all the way around, you see all this stuff, and you meet all these really neat young Marines. And so this young Marine who's been to all the schools, you know, and he's doing great things. He's building brackets for 50-year-old Amtraks that are allowing us to get stuff back on, uh, you know, up in combat readiness, et cetera. It's retention time. So I'm talking to him about reenlistment, He's and he said, uh, sir, no, I wanted to reenlist, but uh, my MOS is closed down. And I said, so what's your MOS? He's a welder. You know, the Marine Corps has only got so many welders, right? And so, you know, there's only so many welders we need down the road as staff sergeants, et cetera. 
And the Marine Corps re-enlists based on your primary MOS. It's the way it's been done for a long time. It makes a lot of sense, but there are exceptions to it. And it seemed to me that this was one of those exceptions where we had spent a lot of money and time. The commandant was talking publicly about adaptive manufacturing, et cetera. And here it was, we had one of our, one of the lead sled dogs in the second Marine division that was doing really great work. And our answer is, uh, we can't reenlist him because he's a welder. So that to me seemed to be an injustice, an injustice to an individual, but something that just didn't make sense as an institution. So I went back, you know, I went, and at that point I was at Mar Marine Forces Command and I was not, no longer Manpower and Reserve Affairs, but I knew exactly what Manpower and Reserve Affairs, Affairs could do given the right number of endorsements, et cetera. So I went back and I huddled with the division commander and then the battalion commander. We worked through a reenlistment package for this young individual, which got endorsed by the colonel, the lieutenant colonel, the colonel, and the one star and the two star and then the three star. And it went up after phone calls and all the other stuff. And we got him reenlisted. But what we also did is we, I called to my good friend, uh, Lieutenant General Dana at Manpower, or Installations and Logistics, and said, we have a problem. We have a gap. And he's like, oh, I wasn't aware. So institutionally, because of the one individual, we then were able to create an exception that allowed us to retain a number of individuals who had listened to us, believed us, began to become experts in the field of adaptive manufacturing, but had little opportunity to stay in the Marine Corps because they were all in very small MOSs because these are the smart kids that work in the shops and stuff like that. That kind of turns it on the head where you do find an individual and there's an exception there. And then how do you work through a policy change that can make things better for a whole group of people? And that was one of those examples where you do that. And I probably didn't answer all of your questions. I asked a lot, so I don't even remember half of them now. <laughs> so, <laughs> Oh, you're just talking about decision-making, but what you just said prompted another question. You discovered a problem with the young welder that was a policy problem and a re-enlistment problem. And you discovered that problem because you were essentially out walking the lines, right? Like a leader does. And you discovered a problem that was with an individual. And it sounds like you went and not only did you help that individual, but as I understand it, probably changed some policy to help some other individuals as well. That prompts me to ask the question, can you tell us about another decision that you made as a general officer that is going to impact the next 30 or 40 years of Marines' lives or the Marine Corps as an institution. Can you talk about a big, a big decision that you made? Because three stars make big decisions. Oh wow. You know, in the in the in the unwritten biography of Mark Berlakis, you know, what is the big thing? Yeah, well, you made a good point in your introduction when you introduce yourself to myself, is that we don't write as much as we used to. And we didn't we don't leave a trail. We don't leave mm -hmm. a trail of breadcrumbs behind for uh, historians to take a look at. So again, I think this this whole venue, this whole podcast, your hobby, as you say it is, is just terrific because um, it does give individuals a chance to talk about stuff like this. Yeah. So I was the commander of the recruiting command, Marine Corps Recruiting Command. And we had just come, Commandant Amos at the time, had directed the Marine Corps to begin to work harder on the issue of diversity. We'd had a big working group, Commandant Neller, who, you know, who became Bob Neller, who then became Commandant Neller, 
played a big role in that in that whole study group. And the Commandant Amos made a decision and he said, look, we are going to, it is good and it's necessary that the Marine Corps reflect the makeup of the United States. And it's going to take us 20 years to do so. And so we're going to go out and do it. I had a slice of that as the recruiting guy. And uh, during my tenure there, we had been looking at what it was that we were doing and what could we change to improve both the quality and the, and the success we had with our various applicants who wanted to join the Marine Corps. And we were really struggling with respect to females and not struggling in terms of numbers because the numbers were getting better because we were actually doing the work. But on the enlisted side, we were having challenge with attrition, whether it was attrition while they were in the pool or attrition when they went to recruit training. And one of the things as we went through this thing was recruiting stations have a number of goals that are set for them, right? Recruiting is a production-driven analytically based activity. And recruiting stations are evaluated on their production and their outcomes. They get goals that they have to follow. And if you do all that, at the end of the year, you you get recognized Mm. and rewarded as superior achievers in recruiting. And that's a big deal. Recruiting, and I don't mean to derail you, but it sounds like recruiting is about the closest thing to working in a civilian business that the Marine Corps has to offer, right? Goals, objectives, accountability, data, reward systems. It's brutal. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to derail you, but you said that. I was like, wow, it's very similar. So whether you're the one star running the recruiting region, the colonel running the recruiting district, or the major running the recruiting station, every month you get a letter that tells you exactly what you owe. So I didn't even go beyond that. It's almost like a mafia family, right? You know, this is what you owe us. You do so at your peril, right? You fail at your peril. But I love the business. I mean, I, I I avoided it like the plague when I was young, and then I got caught up and I got sent to do it. And it's just incredible people doing really hard work. I got a lot of respect for anybody who's wearing, uh, you know, a khaki shirt and the blue trousers uh, and are, are beating the streets at a high school or whatever, because they just do, they really do terrific work. But in this particular case, the one thing that we were not tracking were any statistics with respect to female recruits. We kept the numbers, but they got washed inside all the other numbers, all the male numbers. And when you're only recruiting, you know, seven or eight percent females, those numbers kind of get washed, washed down. So what we decided to do, and I told my boss, who was at the time was the commandant, what I was doing. And I told the deputy commandant for Manpower Reserve Affairs at the time what I was going to do, because he was affected by it as much as anybody else. We established a, a quality standard for female enlisted recruits that was had to be tracked and that had a top line. And if you didn't make it, you weren't qualified for superior achiever. And the first year we put that in place, the recruiting stations got slaughtered. I mean, we had like half the number make superior achiever that next year just because they couldn't get the numbers, uh, the quality standards that were necessary. But the year after that, it got better because. The recruiting command is a learning organization. Those recruiters will figure out how to be successful. Now, the the impact for the recruiters was, is they had to get serious about enlisted female recruiting. They They had to start going in and finding qualified females rather than 
the the girl who came, the young lady who came to the recruiting station and with somebody else, or you know, her boyfriend just contracted the Marine Corps and you know they've decided to do it together or something like that, because we were losing we were losing individuals in the pool process and ended up shipping less qualified people because there's no competition inside the recruiting station pool for uh, those those limited slots unlike what we were doing on the mail side. So the recruiting business, the recruiters figured out how to be more successful. The Marine Corps got smarter at that as well. And the benefit to the Marine Corps was we started to get lower attrition at recruit training because we were bringing more qualified individuals to the table. Both genders are just, but specifically females? Well, both genders, but but now females. Yeah, I mean, we were, we were knocking out of the park with, with men because we had all sorts of quality numbers for males. And while we had numbers for females, they didn't count for the ultimate goal, which was superior achievement. Once you said, hey, this, this number will either, you'll either sink or swim in your annual recognition, then they'll figure out how to make it work. And they did. And so the long-term benefit for the Marine Corps is it's a higher quality young woman who's coming into the Marine Corps, which means that they will, more of them will end up succeeding through their entire four-year contract. And with more of those, then you've got more that will be retained and so, so on and for, you know, and so on. So relatively small decision at the time, which will have greater impact for the Marine Corps down the road. Those are things that occur not on a regular basis, but they do occur from time to time when you have those kind of positions. First of all, congratulations for that, because I think that's a fantastic change that you made. I think it will only result in a better and stronger Marine Corps. I do believe in all of those things. But it's interesting because it now makes me want to ask another question. You're a general officer and you just made a decision. Okay, so in Dave Armstrong's world, when a general says, we're going to do this, that's what's happening. Now, my experience with being a general officer is limited to me seeing the rank for sale in the Marine shop, right? So that's it. That's all. That's all I know about being a general officer. But from my perspective, generals say, do this, and it happens. But what I think I just heard you say was, there's actually some bartering and salesmanship and presentation and things like that that go into general officers making decisions because you've got to convince other general officers to go along with it as well. Is that the case 50% of the time, all of the time? And, and what is it like making a decision as a general officer when you have to involve other general officers? This goes back to my, everybody has 100% experience being a private or a second lieutenant and less than 1% have an experience being a general. So tell the tell the 99% that have no idea how that institution's working, what's happening when a general officer makes a decision? You know, it really depends on what what's your billet. Mm-hmm. What do you do? I mean, what, what, what are you responsible for? So when I was the commander of the recruiting force, I answered to one person, which is a commandant of the Marine Corps, which, which gives you a lot of authority. Okay, so recruiting command is direct report right to the commandant. That's correct. Now you work through the deputy commandant for manpower and reserve affairs because you're feeding you're feeding his his needs. So he establishes your mission and tells you what he needs in terms of young men, young women, aviation officers, you know, all that other stuff. That's the mission that you get from him. But as far as execution goes, you're responsible to one individual. And oh, by the way. Most of the orders and regulations that are written for the recruiting command are signed by the commander of recruiting command. Okay. You've really got a lot of authority unto yourself. The entire recruiting budget for the Marine Corps or the advertising budget for the Marine Corps is spent 
by the commander of recruiting command. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now you've got to bring, you know, you've got to talk to the commandant about the advertising campaign and some of the other stuff as far as that stuff goes. But as far as where the vast majority of the money gets spent, that's on the commander. So you, you have a lot of authority. And oh, by the way, nobody wants to get in your business because it's a hard job. And, you know, nobody wants to get involved in that. It's like when you're in programs and resources. Everybody's a critic, but nobody wants to do the job because it's just not a lot of fun. If you're a division commander, you have a lot of authority inside your division. Your word is law, et cetera. And only when you step beyond your bounds, your authority, will you end up probably being brought up short. Now, if you're a deputy commandant, you're sitting on top of one of the departments of headquarters Marine Corps, a fiefdom, whether it's programs and resources or manpower or operations, logistics, et cetera. Those are very intense stovepipes of excellence, but on a policy side or a resourcing issue, et cetera, you have a tendency to cross those cylinders. And if you've got an idea or you need resources that have to come from some other place, you've got to be in sales mode. If you don't want your budget decremented because they want to spend money on this, then you have to be able to articulate to the group, whether it's the Marine Resource Oversight Council, the MROC, or it's another forum, the executive offsite or whatever, you have to be able to influence your peers to go along with you. And that gets that can be very, very exciting. If I want a million dollars of your money to do my thing, then I've really got to be able to explain to you why my thing is more important than your thing. And sometimes you can win those. Sometimes you don't win those. Sometimes you have to default those up to the commandant. And the Marine Corps of all the military services, the, the Marine Corps' decision-making process is probably a lot more defi well-defined than it is in the other services, right? We have two four-stars, the commandant and the assistant commandant. Those guys that are combatant commanders really don't count because they're not inside the Marine right. Corps as far as that goes. So, you know, a lot of decisions get deferred up to uh, the assistant commandant or the commandant because the three stars can't agree. But a lot of the day-to-day -day ones, you, you try and work it out with your peers. Not always successful because they don't see the world the same way you do. They're not in the same position you're in. You need their support, their vote, but they're, they've got other issues. They're worried about the entire Pacific or they're worried about aviation and what you want is tangential to the things that they're interested in. So those can be really, really tough. So you try and accomplish most of your stuff through your own authority. And one of the things that's really a challenge is because the Marine Corps' decision-making process is, is fairly well-defined, the way it's evolved over time, you don't necessarily have all the authority that you need in your sphere to do what needs to be done. A lot of folks just won't they won't arbitrarily make decisions, write regulations, et cetera, just because it's in their bailiwick, right? They'll, they, they need to talk to the commandant or they need to get somebody to agree, et cetera. And that's a little bit different from business, I think. Um, you know, more often than not, my experience at the recruiting command was is as long as I produced and I made the numbers that were necessary, whatever went on inside my little organization, as long as it wasn't anything that would get me on the you know, front page above the fold of the Washington Post, it was all good. But in some of the other organizations in the headquarters, because things cross over as much as they do, it can be much more difficult. It's just kind of the difference between a military organization that has evolved over a long period of time versus a business organization where, you know, my mission to you, my, you know, your mission is go out, 
take the product I give you and sell it at a very high degree to outpace my competitors. That's your job. Okay. And inside that, I don't care what you do, just as long as you produce the bottom line that we're looking for, as long as you do it ethically and you don't break the law. And that doesn't account for all businesses. But, you know, that's what I'm really looking for. Ours tends to be a little bit more touchy-feely in the decision-making process, especially at senior levels. And it's not hard to completely side rail a very senior executive decision if you haven't done the missionary work to bring your peers, or if you're the commandant, you're three stars along. I saw this, my first assignment at headquarters Marine Corps, I was a, uh, as a young captain selected for major. And I was doing my first staff assignment and I was completely outraged when I finally figured out, I figured out in this one instance, the commandant wanted to do something. And it was so obvious that the three stars didn't agree and they were, they were waiting them out. And I said, this is crazy. You know, this is the commandant of Marine Corps. He makes the decisions. And what I started to find out uh, at a very young age, that wasn't necessarily the case. And then what I found out later at a very old age, that's pretty much still holds. You got to bring your peers on. A few minutes ago, you said something that, you know, as you progress in rank, you didn't say exactly like this. So do a course correction here. But you said, you know, your decisions, as you get more and more senior, your decision level moves away from the tactical decision making more to the institutional decision making. And I'm wondering if you can respond to this thought, which is there is a component of leadership that matures over time that brings in a lot of different leadership traits and principles than our JJ did tie buckle that are words that we really don't talk about in leadership, but do in fact exist at higher levels in the Marine Corps, which are things like, if, you're, if you have to get other general officers on board, you've got leadership skills that you need to bring into play, like empathy, relatability, your ability to communicate effectively with people, be liked and trusted. And those things are not JJ did type buckle leadership things, right? Those are learned, honed, skills that are probably a function of experience and time and maturity, but they are in fact leadership traits that need to be brought to bear when you become a senior officer. Is that true or false? Oh, 100% true. No doubt about it. There were times where I was in conversations with a peer and it, it was apparent to me, he just didn't trust me. He didn't trust what I was saying. He didn't believe that the proposal I was making was either uh, as advantageous to him as I was making it out to be, or I had this ulterior motive where I was, you know, just going to steal his lollipop. That's a very tough place to be because it's really hard to dissuade somebody who has that opinion that no, you know, my objectives are true and I'm trying to do what I believe is in the best interest of the Marine Corps. And that was frustrating too. I mean, I, you're trying to you're trying to sell a position that you know, you know, you know whether or not it's it's true or not. But that's a matter of conjecture. But you know, is in the in the best interest of the Marine Corps, and somebody's fighting you on it because one, they either haven't read the stuff you sent them, or they just had somebody whispering in their ear, or you know, they just don't see it the same way you do. And having those particular discussions were very, very tough, but you're absolutely right. When you get to executive leadership and big institutional decision-making, it is a lot about influencing people. It's as much about leadership. How can you, how can you bring your peers along with you, especially those that have only a tangential interest or you know, will only affect them tangentially? 
how can you bring them along? Especially if somebody else who's, you know, vehemently opposes whatever else that you've got going on. And those things can be really, really tough. They're not exceptions. They are more often the rule. And you have to get along with all sorts of people. As a deputy commandant for manpower, you know, I was the show cause authority for all officer misconduct. So every officer misconduct case in the Marine Corps would come through me recommended, you know, with recommendations from my peers or juniors before they went to the secretary, the assistant secretary of the Navy for final decision and termination. So I read all those cases. My name isn't in it, but isn't there a name for like the book of officer misconduct? Doesn't it have an official name? Is there a, or is that just lore? Well, they call it a book. It's actually just really a, a set of records and stuff. Euphemistically, they call it the bad boy book. So it does exist. It does exist. Absolutely. It stays around for a, forever. Yeah. Wow. But it's, it's, a, it's a funny thing. I mean, it, it occurs. All officer misconduct goes in the book, stays in the book. If it's adjudicated, if it's not, if it's either dismissed or it's you're not guilty, that information, it still resides. Notations are made so everybody can remember what went on. And quite frankly, I know of several cases where individuals had made errors early in their careers, were given an opportunity to continue on and through hard work and good performance, you know, rose to the rank of colonel and even lieutenant general. Yeah, I love the second chance stories. Yeah, they're out there. But it's not that they escape punishment. At the time for what they did, they were punished. It went in the record. It was, it was then seen and seen and seen over and over and over again. The real interesting thing is there are times where you get to a certain point and now all of a sudden it matters, right? Didn't matter when you were lieutenant colonel and you got selected for command, et cetera, but now we're going to promote you to colonel and now all of a sudden it matters. And why does it matter? Because something external to the Marine Corps had occurred and now the issue is fresh. Mm -hmm. And then now you get to the justice point. You have to argue. There's this one case where I was in a board with my peers and this general officer who had made a mistake probably 12 to 15 years before had been punished, but had gotten promoted and promoted and promoted again, et cetera, was now being potentially punished for an action that they took that a year ago was not an issue. And it was only an issue because this behavior was now topical, whether it was alcohol, sexual assault, whatever it was, or infidelity or whatever, whatever it could be, it was now topical. Right. And you have to end promotion boards. You have to persuade. You have to lead. You have to be able to gather pertinent arguments and put them out in such a way that individuals who are inclined to think something different can be swayed to see your point of view. And in that case, the individual was fine. I mean, he ended up being selected for promotion, et cetera. I saw it at the Senate a couple of times where individuals that had pre prior stuff had been successful enough to get through all the many wickets to now be considered for their second or third star. And it was now it was painful. And they're going through it all over again. And it wasn't just the first time they'd been considered by Senate committee. You know, this is the second or third time that they'd gotten through this hurdle. And so you're like, why are we doing this thing again? Well, sometimes it's because the issue is now pertinent. Or it's just because somebody found it and they think, oh, this is, this is not, this is wrong. So yeah, there are second chances. I've run across a number of them. I've given guys second chances. But that doesn't mean to say I, I haven't given other guys second chances. Right. I buried a number of young, really hard chargers 
but it was my opinion at the time that they did not have the potential to lead Marines effectively at more senior levels. Yeah, you said it early on and when we were, we were talking about making bad decisions and you said, you know, there's a difference between being wrong versus missing a detail versus errors, you know, that were made on purpose with complete disregard to commander's intent or rules and regulations. And there's a whole lot of different ways you can mess up and some are recoverable and some aren't. And you mentioned the officer misconduct, and I'm going to challenge you on this, and this is a little off script, but what traits tend to derail leaders or cause them to fail? And my challenge to you is, please don't give me one of the obvious answers like integrity violation. Give the listeners a really solid, concrete, but not obvious example of a trait that derails leaders or causes them to fail. What kind of bureaucrat would I be if I gave you a straight answer? <laughs> you don't have the reputation of ever taking the easy way out on a question or a comment. So I knew I could probably get away with it. With more senior officers, I think the number one foible is arrogance. Wow. That is not what I was expecting. And I think with more junior officers, it really is an inattention to detail that leads to a series of events that ends up blowing up in their faces. But there's another trait that I think is relatable to both senior and junior Marines, which is a lack of empathy. I came to understand and embrace empathy as a trait, an incredibly important trait in a leader, a little bit later on in my career. Although I think, I think I've always had a fair degree of empathy based on my behavior, but I think that it is critically important. I think senior leaders, the ones that get themselves in a twist because of their seniority, because of the fact that they are pink unicorns inside their organizations, they start to believe that they are more unique than they actually are. When I was on active duty my last couple of years, there were 17 three stars in the Marine Corps. That means there were 16 other individuals other than myself that had reach that particular status through hard work and initiative and intense loyalty, et cetera. And so I wasn't unique. I was just one of the many. And I was mindful of the fact that I represented a whole lot of people, whether it was in my own personal staff, my extended staff, the organization that I led, I was the embodiment of that. And I had responsibilities to that. There are some that will allow themselves to get to the point where they isolate themselves in their own belief, in their own exquisiteness, and they start to just cut corners. And they stop thinking that the rules apply at that particular point, in, uh, you know, to them at that particular point in time. And more often than not, those one, two, three stars that have gotten themselves in trouble, have gotten trouble because they were arrogant about who they were and the position they were, and they took shortcuts, and they, they forgot that there is no individual inside the government in the United States, and understand that military officers are members of administration, they're in the government, that are more highly scrutinized than general officers, for all the right reasons. I'm, you know, I'm, I don't, I'm not aggrieved by this. I understand it. It's one of the things that you have to live live with. They lost their way. They thought they were too, they were big enough not to be held accountable for what was going on. And it doesn't happen all that often. God, it really doesn't, especially in the Marine Corps. Now, there are other 
other things that jump up and grab you in the ass. That's about details or, you know, aides, subordinate staffs. But it's the same thing. There's an arrogance, but there is a lack of empathy. All right. I am this guy. I'm in the front office. I make these decisions. I, you know, pass wind and it smells like peppermint, you know, all those other things. But the fact is, is that I'm not thinking about how my actions and my attitudes affect the individuals around me. And that is a problem. And I don't, I stop caring about the effects that I have on others. And that's probably the greatest sin, I think, that happens at, at very senior levels. As far as junior officers, failure to understand the details, sometimes that's laziness, sometimes that's just unfortunate. But the, the fact is, is they'll ignore the so many details that when one thing starts going wrong, you start to end up with a cascade of events and there's just no way to stop that train. And you see it in accident reports, et cetera, that go on. Or they're just not paying attention. And again, it's a lack of empathy. If you're a battery commander or a battalion commander and you're dealing with Marines at a very close personal level, et cetera, and you're deciding whether they get promoted or they get demoted, et cetera, if you can't understand where they are in time in the position that they're in, all right, if you don't have that degree of empathy, it's going to be hard to be an effective leader because the empathetic portion of leadership is really important. It's important that you understand the feelings of the individuals that you lead. And that doesn't mean that you accede to those feelings. It just means that you understand you're going to do this. You're bringing them in for the weekend again and again, because you can't get your shit squared away to get your work done during a five-day week. So you keep bringing people in on a regular basis. And the Marines are sitting around and they're saying, this is just, this is crazy. You know, I've got a wife, I've got kids, you know, you're putting my marriage at risk and all this other stuff. And, and if you just don't, see it. If you don't feel it, you don't understand it, then you got problems. I mean, as a battalion commander, I think I brought the organization in, unless we're in the field, because in the field, you're out training, it's on weekends. But I think we went, we went into work on, on a Saturday, maybe three times in two years. And on Friday, I had them all together. And I explained exactly why I was bringing them in, exactly what I expect to get done, and exactly what needed to be done before we ended up finishing up. Because you just got to realize that you're going to create problems. If even if the guy just misses a day of fishing, that could be a, that could be enough to create a problem. Sure, it could be. I would imagine that a lot of it is really coming down on shoulders a lot harder now with command climate surveys because people are starting to take into consideration how people feel in your command. And you're right. I think empathy is probably one of the most important leadership traits that people need to learn. And I think they need to learn it really early on because if you don't have any, it will just infect your leadership style forever. And here's where I think the lack of empathy really becomes a problem for people. The Marine Corps, we all love it. Most people love it, but she is a fickle mistress. And sooner or later, she tires of us all. <laughs> That's right. Everybody transitions. And when you transition out of the military where empathy really isn't as overtly recognized as it is in the civilian world, I see that as being the biggest transition problem, my friends. And this isn't a show on transition, so I'll get off this very quickly, but it is a leadership trait. So I think that your ability to develop empathy, like you said, you don't necessarily need to display it all the time, but you need, at least need to understand. And then being able to transition that empathy 
into the civilian world, that is a bridge that is that is a difficult one for a lot of my friends that I've seen to cross is that lack of empathy because it was never developed. I couldn't agree with you more. And, and the fact is, is that we don't talk about empathy. There almost 40 years ago, I went to the basic school and then I went to Fort Sill, you know, and I've been to the amphibious warfare school and then command of staff college and top level school and nobody ever talked about empathy. I imagine there were times if you talked about empathy, people would say, man, you're weak. I, that you know you're you're just weak but it was interesting i was at manpower reserve affairs and i had a i had met a woman who'd done a lot of work on emotional intelligence and she was doing some work for law enforcement and for some of the other services and for special operations command she and i were having lunch one day and she was talking to me about a, a survey they'd done and the interesting thing was is they were looking for different traits because I was at the point where we were looking for some non-cognitive testing that we could do that would give us some better ideas about where people, where their best self resided in terms of uh, military occupational skills and things like that. So we're having this conversation. He said, you know, we did this survey. And one of the things that I found really, really surprising was in a non-cognitive test we did to identify who were higher performers in military organizations, one of the traits that scored very high for successful military personnel was empathy. And what she said was even more surprising was in all the services, it scored highest in special operators. And you'd go, huh. That's interesting. So folks that we send out to kill, not only, you know, do really dirty, nasty things, but to kill everything in sight. These guys are more empathetic. She said, yeah, it's just been, it's one of those things that we have learned as we've gone through this. That's fascinating. I know we're, we're coming up on the end here. I, I have one other question. I, I, I really love the, the arrogance and the, the foils that cause people to fail, I think is the way you said it. That was fantastic. When general officers are required to be great decision makers, can you talk about how general officers are then selected? What is happening when a general officer gets selected for being a general officer? And I'm just going to make up an example. Tell me if this is right or not. But there's a two-star that's up for a three-star. Are the three-stars getting together? Because the promotion board just probably doesn't exist at that point. It's just you guys getting mm -hmm. together and saying, hey, good guy, bad guy, yes, no. Are you at liberty to talk about how general officers select their future decision makers? Sure. I mean, it's it's no great mystery. Well, it's probably really a great mystery. It's a mystery to ninety nine percent of us. So I don't I I don't remember the author, but I will send you I will send you the citation. There was a book that was that was written probably 14, 15 years ago on Marine Corps general officers, which is actually not a bad read. I'll bet it's good. Talks about the various commandants and how they ended up becoming commandant. And the one, the one interesting theme was there was no one commandant that you know, no two commandants that, that followed a similar thread to, from three star to the senior member of the service. Right? It was all depending upon presidential interest or or secretary of defense who was stronger, secretary of defense, secretary of the navy, whether it came down to Congress, politics, etc. So not a bad book. But how we do it is not necessarily much of a mystery. You can find most of it in U.S. law. So promotion from colonel to brigadier general is a statutory board. So what that means is it's outlined in Title 10 in law. 
all the other it, it applies all the all the laws rules applied to promoting majors to lieutenant colonel lieutenant colonel to colonel all apply to promoting colonels to brigadier general with with a couple of different exceptions one of the things that's important is no more than 10% of those that are selected to brigadier general have to have a qualifying tour in their career to that point as a joint qualified officer. That's a that was something that, that came in with the law, Goldwater Nichols, and that right. that required. So that was an effort to ensure that senior leaders in the services understood joint war fighting to a high degree. And quite frankly, it's been very very successful. If you're hiring, if you're hiring or you're promoting a colonel f- to the acquisition billet in the Marine Corps, Marine Corps Systems Command, they have to be an acquisition professional with certain qualifications, et cetera. So there are some things. If they're a, if you're promoting the special the uh, staff judge advocate in the Marine Corps, then obviously it needs to be a qualified lawyer who's got good standing in a bar, et cetera, you know, one of the one of the state bars. So those are some requirements over and above, but. That's all the same. We do the same thing for promotion to two-star. That's a statutory board as well. Same thing. For the one-star board, you have, I think it might be a major general or a lieutenant general. I'm not sure. They might both, both might be lieutenant generals. But there's a president of the board. There are board members who are all of that grade or senior, and they go through records the same way, and they go and they parse, you know, they parse through. And and the promotion rate to one star is very, very small, two, three percent, because the Marine Corps doesn't have that many general officer positions. Yeah, about sixty. Yeah, when it's all said and done, I mean, it's, when it's all said and done, there's about eighty-one or eighty-two positions. Okay. A number of them are joint and external. Those are given to us outside. The Marine Corps itself owns about sixty billets for general officers, one, two, three, four star. It's really not a big number, which means that between eight to 11 get promoted every year out of three or 400 individuals, both above zone, below zone, and in zone that are being, being, being looked at. So to one star and to two star, those are statutory boards. And there really isn't any choice other than there is, there is no choice. You can talk about them. I mean, and as the manpower guy, I would sit with the commandant and we talk about general officer assignments where they would be if they got promoted and where they would be sent. Now, for three stars, the three star is really a choice of the commandant of the Marine Corps. Okay. And the commandant will tell you when you when you get promoted and you join the Marine Corps as a general officer, the commandant is your monitor. He is your career advisor. Where you go, he makes all those decisions. And the promotion to three star is a decision that's made by for the most part, is made by the commandant. And the commandant always runs that decision past the Secretary of the Navy. Okay. Just because he's the he's the next guy in the chain <laughs> that, uh, you know, recommends the individual. And if he's not on board, you're in big trouble. But the commandant pretty much makes, and, and it's important, I think, that he does. So everybody needs to understand, while the one stars and two stars are statutory boards, the three stars and the four stars are nominative positions, okay? You get nominated to a position. I didn't get nominated to be a three-star general. I got nominated to be the deputy commandant for Manpower Reserve Affairs, which was a three-star billet. And when I was confirmed in that billet, 
as long as I served in that billet, I would stay a three-star. I was then nominated again to be a commander of Marine Forces at command. That was another three-star billet, and I had to go through the entire nomination process again. Had I left Manpower and Reserve Affairs before I was confirmed in my next assignment, then after, I think it's 60 days if memory serves, I would have automatically reverted back to my last permanent grade, which was Major General. I managed to retire before my 60 days went up and after I'd left my last billet. And so I retired as a Lieutenant General. Okay. When I was in manpower, I went through one of these where we had a three-star who was having a confirmation problem and he ended up having to refer back to two-star for a period of time before he got confirmed again as a three-star. It was brutal. The rank and file don't know how that all works. And I just learned a lot there. That was that was really interesting. Yeah, the confirmation process is long and arduous. I mean, I think inside the Pentagon, a nomination package hits 20, 28 inboxes before it goes across the river to the White House. Wow. I guess it stands to reason then that the commandant is, is a much higher, that must be like Secretary of Defense, Secretary of Navy kind of decision. Oh, yeah. It's got to go through up through the assistant secretary of the navy for personnel it goes through the secretary of the navy it goes for the jet it goes through the council the navy council it goes through the joint chairman it goes through the chairman's office it goes through the department of defense it goes through about five or six legal screenings because you don't want to you don't want a guy to be nominated approved to come back and all of a sudden some skeleton in the closet passes by you know comes back up now i said the commandant makes the decision and that's true he is the decider Depending upon who the commandant is, there is a degree of collaboration that goes on in who it is that we think will be qualified or should have the opportunity to lead as a as a lieutenant general. So that's a process. I didn't want to make it sound like the commandant sits in a closet and figures out how he wants to do this stuff. There is a lot of collaboration that goes on, especially on the promotion side. This may sound like a question out of reality TV, but just, just real quick, this is a total curiosity question, right? Nothing to do with leadership but you just sparked my interest. What's it like when you guys all get together? Are, are you friends? Are you like, do you, is it like a bunch of my lieutenant buddies getting together? You all rib each other a little bit, make fun of each other, you know, bring up some old stories, drink some beers. Is, is, it, is it very collegial? When you get to the three-star level, there's 16 of you, right? Yeah, for the most part it is. So yeah, there's not, if you're talking about three stars and four stars, it's a small group of people. We've known each other for years. Commandant Berger, the current commandant, and I were classmates at Command and Staff College and at the School of Advanced Warfighting and have become, have become friends over time. There were f- five members of that, our class at the School of Advanced Warfighting that became three stars uh, out of 12. There were 12 Marines in that class and five of us became three stars. Actually, six of us because the, Nor- the Norwegian in that class, he got promoted to three star in his country. It's a small group. You serve with each other. And the Marine Corps... The Marine Corps is a small organization. There's, although, you know, it's about a quarter million between active component and reserve component, there are about 26,000 officers. You know, when you get down to it, there's 600 and some colonels. And this is on the active side. Reserve side makes it bigger. But on the active side, about 600 and some colonels. And you've been, you've been to schools or activities or things that you've done during the course of your career. So, but it's still a surprise. I mean, when I got selected, there were 12 guys in my class and- The aviators, right, that kind of makes sense. 
I, I knew most of the ground guys. I didn't, I did not know all the aviators. But yeah, it's like a large extended family. You know each other more often than not, you know each other's wives. And the Marine Corps does some stuff that really helps, right? We've got this annual thing for the for the group of one stars that get selected. They come to headquarters Marine Corps that summer uh, and go through the Brigadier General Select Orientation Program. And they spend two weeks and it's your it's yourself and your spouse. Uh, and you do social things, you do classes, you do discussions. You get to know them. On top of that, the Commandant wisely includes the senior executive service civilians who have joined the Marine Corps during that year. And so you get you get a really intense appreciation of a small group of folks. And then every year we do the general officer symposium where every general officer and his spouse comes to Quantico for a five-day session where you go through, you, know, you, you get re-greened uh, in the Marine Corps and you find out about new programs, new processes and stuff. So you get to know each other, at least see each other during the course of your career as a general officer often. And so by the time you make three stars, you've served. You either served as a subordinate to a um, MEF commander or whatever, and you, you, know, you got promoted. So yeah, around, you know your friends. Most of these guys, when I talked about friends earlier, some of these guys are the best friends I had in the Marine Corps because we've just been together for a long time and, and the paths crossed. Others you know, there are others that you deal with and just like anybody else, you're you're associated by service and commitment, et cetera, but whether you're not, you care for each other is just, you know, that's a that's a human thing, right? Yeah, it's it's a human thing. Over 30 or 40 years, there's going to be some crossing of the swords somewhere, you know. Oh, sure. Absolutely. I served as the... Uh, the head of the SACUR's Washington office, the European Command, SACUR and European Command, the same guy. And I ran the office in Washington, D.C. as in the Pentagon. And at the time, the commandant was a Marine, but the, the deputy was a soldier, four-star. The Army has a lot more four-stars than the Marine Corps does, not only in structure, but also in joint assignments. And the Army's got something kind of similar. They have a quarterly four-star conferences where they, the four stars that are available come together and they do a bunch of the big business with the chief of staff of the army, as far as that goes. And I remember escorting my boss at that time up to the thing, being really kind of interested. It's a very small room. There's, a, you know, maybe a dozen tops. But as soon as the session ended and I walked in the room, they all had their backs to each other. And they're either talking to their aides or looking at their phones or whatever else it is. But there's no, there's none of that stuff going on. And when they left for lunch or whatever, they all headed in different directions, which is really different than my experience in the Marine Corps, where, you know, once the formal stuff was done, then you'd start finding your buddies and you'd start catching up and doing all that stuff. And I just think it's, it has to do with the size of the Marine Corps and the lack of threat we feel from each other. Yeah, that that last response doesn't surprise me at all. I guess we are such a small organization and we have this shared experience in the beginning of everything with TBS and you just it's so small, you kind of know names and you recognize people. I That doesn't shock me at all. You catch up with your buddies and I can't imagine general officer symposium at the end at 1700 every day and everybody scatters. No, there's a lot of beers get drunk during those events. Uh, so I was commissioned in 1990. So everybody that's still on active duty right now, that is my peer group, are general officers because they'd be retired if they weren't. And uh, so I've gone to a couple of the 8th and I BG SOC ceremonies where they get the shell. 
you know, living in Washington, D.C., I, I get to see a lot of those guys when they come through. It's been interesting. But I remember the one comment my friend made when he, when he went through BG Sock and he came up to 8th and I and I said, how did it go this week? And he goes, well, it was really interesting. I basically was told that if the bus full of us coming from Quantico to the parade tonight was killed in a fiery car accident, nothing would change in the Marine Corps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I was like, okay, that's putting a point on things. I, that must be a very popular annual part of the BG Sock. We got the same thing from General Conway. And I think he went into, uh, we got into the third bus where he said, uh, maybe at the end of the third bus, I'd start having some problems. Right. <laughs> so at that point, at that point, you're all well grounded on exactly uh, how fortunate you, you were. And, and, and quite frankly, it's the truth. I mean, the Marine Corps, I think all the military service, but the Marine Corps in particular, having stood on, sat in a number of promotion boards, et cetera, is always has a very good problem. There's always more qualified passionate, enthusiastic men and women who would be more than happy to be promoted to the next grade than we have positions for them to fill. That's a good problem for the institution, not for the 60 people. But Well, that's, that's exactly right. But it's important that, that leaders who sit on those boards get the chance to experience that problem. Then you can articulate that problem to the individuals that didn't make the cut line. Right. Because quite frankly, when you don't get selected for something, it's a pretty lonely place. It's one of those things where for individuals who have never had a doubt about themselves in their lives, always knew what direction they were going, could always count on the next thing to happen, et cetera, all of a sudden face it for the first time. It is devastating. And I say this as a person who when promotion list came out, the first thing that I did was I called the individuals that didn't make it and informed them of that. That was the worst duty I ever had to do as a leader. Calling people up and saying they didn't get selected was brutal. It was really brutal for the person that it happened, but it was tough to be the person delivering that news. And you had to do it. And you had no you know, you've got XOs or chiefs of staff or other folks and stuff. That is the one duty that never gets handed off to anybody else. That's a fantastic statement. You could have led with that at the beginning of this, because that is a serious skill that leaders need to learn how to do, which is get good at delivering the bad news mm -hmm. because you're going to do it all throughout your career. It's not easy. And I don't remember anything in TBS teaching me how to do it. No, no, no. no. And I guess you learn it by getting bad news or seeing your friends get bad news and you just kind of figure well, it out. Well, you got to learn it by doing it. And I will not lay claim that I, I, I know all this and I, I've experienced it because obviously I didn't. Although the first time that I was eligible for command in a command screening board, the message came out and I got nothing. I mean, I wasn't an alternate. I didn't get selected for command. I was like, whoa. At that particular point in time, you start to reevaluate all the things and all, all the choices you made as far as assignments, all the things you did, and anybody you might have pissed off or, you know, all that stuff. And it's not easy. And I've had to make a number of those phone calls. You never get good at them. You just have to do them. And I credit to a lot of professionals because there are a lot of people who are really open-eyed about what they've done, what their choices are, et cetera. And you make those calls and it's like, yeah, okay, got it. I didn't expect it, but thanks very much for the call. And then others that are just, just devastated. It ties back to your comment about empathy. 
you were probably good at it because you were in command of your own empathy. You understood empathy. I think people that understand empathy probably are better at delivering the bad news. Mm -hmm. it, it ties back to what you were saying. One of the most important leadership traits. I'll, I'll conclude with this last question, tying it back to leadership and everything that you talk about. But when you look backwards through the lens of a general officer, what conventional wisdom do you find most flawed? Dave, that's a great, it's a great question. It doesn't have a really easy answer. And, you know, if you're talking in terms of leadership and let's limit it to that, I think we become, we have become, generations have become pretty comfortable with our view of what leadership is. Uh, and so, you know, there are the individual applications of the principles of leading people and the organizational constructs, which I mean, units, et cetera. In the former people, leading people, I found that the model initially that was taught at Officer Candidate School and the base school, and pretty much are still taught today, were fundamentally sound, right? The concepts were fairly basic and drilled into young minds with repetitive cadence. It was rote memorization, it was repeated exposure, and the fact is we understood the basics of leadership. BAMSIS, um, the troop leading steps, the definition, et cetera, and, and we got it. And we were allowed to practice it and apply it in, at, at various venues and stuff. The challenge then, all right, becomes the execution in practical terms. What do we do with all that training? How do we, how do we then get to the next generation? We talked earlier about the first days as a second lieutenant showing up at your platoon, et cetera. Well, you come in with all this stuff, all this training, all these beliefs and what you're supposed to do. and I think the service believes that from there, it's just, you know, rinse and repeat. We're just going to do this stuff. But I think what that fails to take into account is the environment in which these youngsters find themselves going into. And so in the execution in practical terms, we turn out young leaders to do hard things and the support they get, I think, is uneven at best. Some seniors see it in sink or swim terms. All right. You're out there. I'm going to let you do what you do. If you're successful, great. If you're not, then I'm going to get rid of you and find somebody else. You know, others then apply solid mentoring and development. I get these young minds, these young hearts. My job is to go out and find, uh, you know, young leaders who eventually replace me. I'm a talent manager. I'm watching these guys. I'm, I'm pulling them aside and saying, look, you did this. I think you can do it better if you do it that way. It's a very personal method of leadership. It's, it's, highly, highly effective. And then there are others that are out there to see these young men and women enthusiastic as they are, et cetera. Uh, they see them and their performance as potentially harmful to their own station and status. And what I mean by that is they're not really confident leaders. I mean, my first battery commander, God bless him, was terrible. He didn't have confidence in himself. He did not understand the book. He, and he had a personality that just, uh, you know, alienated folks. So for me, it was good because I got an example early on of what not to do. But mm -hmm. everything anybody did was viewed under the context of what are you doing to try and screw me up? Your, your thing, your job, your, your job is to do for me. And if you don't do for me, then you're a danger to me. There are those leaders out there as well. I think that there are way too many well-intentioned junior officers who are trying their best but find themselves on the extremes of those three situations that I just discussed. And while there are plenty who manage to survive and even thrive, my first battery commander was not the strongest leader. 
Uh, I saw him be vindictive from time to time. I got under his, I got in his radar a couple uncomfortable times, et cetera, but I managed to get through it and thrive. There are too many for whom the struggle becomes just way too hard, much harder than it should be. And then they become discouraged and you see the light kind of go out in their eyes and then they just start going through the motions and all they're doing is waiting for their end of active service to come up. So they just get away from it, which is really a shame. I mean, it really, we lose a lot of talent because of that. For senior officers, especially the very senior ones, we tend to suffer from a very human tendency to remember the old days just a bit too fondly. <laughs> yeah, so natural. If we did it and survived, then it's just fine to continue. And it's, I think it's a generational nature in folks. I mean, I was a baby boomer. I went to college and I, I knew I was supposed to graduate in four years, so I graduated in four years. It's only when I was a parent and I found out that my child was going to take at least five years to graduate from school that I realized that that was an option. You know, you learn these things by doing. But when I was young, what we did, what we, what we survived through was okay. But the fact is, is that overlooks the fact that our society changes and the people in the society change. In my last year on active duty, I had to look back over 22 years to find the period when I became a lieutenant colonel. It was 22 years from the time, the end of my career, to the time that I became a lieutenant colonel. 22 years. Wow. That was two generations and on the cusp of the third. That was Gen Xers and millennials and, and latchkey kids all went through the Marine Corps from that period of time. And every one of those generations were different. I learned it in that billet. That was the first time. It was when I had lieutenants who were a different generation than I was. I was a lieutenant colonel, battalion commander, knew what I wanted to do, et cetera. And these, these young men who were in my organization were had concerns and worries that were so different from what I remembered when I was their age. And I thought, initially, I thought it was their fault. And it really wasn't. It was how I perceived the world it through my lens, and I disregarded their lens. This was reinforced to me once again when I was the commander of the recruiting force, where the generation and what we were bringing in was hugely important to the success of the command's mission. And so the generational thing is something that we really can't overlook because two and a half generations or two generations on the cusp of the third is a lot of external change that is reflected in the young men and women who are joining the Marine Corps every year and whose outlook of the world runs smack dab into the immobility of institutional prerogatives, i.e. the Marine Corps and what senior generals think is right. Today, a practical problem that the Commandant faces, vaccines for COVID-19. Mm -hmm. We've got emergency authorizations for vaccines, which gives the Marine the option of either taking it or not. You can't legally order an individual to take a vaccine that's on an experimental status, which is hugely different than when I came in with the, you know, the air guns. Yeah, the blue plate special. You got everything at once. You got everything at once. Nobody, nobody asked you. You just lined up. And if you didn't want to be in the line, they just sent you to the door and put you back on the street. Right. So, you know, different times required different solutions. And I think that's one of the, you know, to your question, Dave, I think in the conventional wisdom is we just think the Marine Corps marches on and on. And the fact is that the Marine Corps is innovative an institution, not necessarily by purpose, 
Not, it's not that there are necessarily people pulling levers, et cetera. The fact is the Marine Corps changes because what we keep bringing in the Marine Corps changes as our society changes, which is, you know, flies in the face of so much that the old core used to say, right? The old core, new core, old core, new core, whatever it is, don't, you know, it's just right. the Marine Corps. Well, the fact mm -hmm. it is, it is just the Marine Corps and the old core is old and it's been left behind. The new core is out there and it's moving forward. And it's sure as shit in, a, in about 10 years when the next generation comes in, the new core is going to become the old core and then we're going to define a new core as far as that goes. So I, under, I, under, I came to understand the generational nature of leadership later in my career, but I witnessed it when I led that battalion. It's real and it requires understanding, patience and flexibility. I'm not saying that the Marine Corps has to do cheetah flips with every new generation, but it has to be cognizant that there are real pressures on both leaders and the lead, and it makes things so much easier if decisions, policies, et cetera, are made with these realities in mind. And I will say that our leadership is much more cognizant of it than they have been in the past. Now, I can say that because we were cognizant of it during my time as a general officer, I'll give myself and my peers credit for being forward-looking, et cetera. But what I've seen even since then is some of our junior leaders talking with respect to generational change. And if you, if you read the Marine Corps Gazette, which is the Marine Corps' forum for discussion and debate, there's been a lot of talk about generational issues in it as well. So I feel pretty good. I think that is one of the things that people overlook is the fact that the Marine Corps is not a monolith. But the Marine Corps is, it's led by people. And people have their flaws and their, their hangups, et cetera. I was crossing the Brooklyn Bridge a number of years ago with a group of veteran Marines. And I was talking to this one Marine who'd had a really hard time after he'd gotten, in, he'd gotten himself in trouble in the Marine Corps and he'd been mustered out. Uh, he had a heroin addiction and he was in a really dark place for a long time. And one of the things that helped him out was the fact that he was a former Marine. I mean, he was tossed out on a bad conduct discharge and all that other stuff. And it got really bad for him, but he reached out and we were with a group of Marines that are service members that they hike together. You know, they, they, put the word out, we're going to do a hike and we're doing a hike through Manhattan and we're going across the Brooklyn Bridge and we're going to end up at Battery Park. It's really pretty cool. And I was talking to him about the Marine Corps and I said, you got to understand that there's no doubt that during your time in the Marine Corps, you ran against, you ran across people who were unhelpful to you in your time of need. They saw things in black and white terms and they made you feel bad about yourself. And it, I'm sure it contributed to this, this lost period of your life. But you're back. You're back. You're amongst your brothers and you're doing this and it means something to you and it's helped you with recovery. And it's simply because the Marine Corps is bigger than any individual and the Marine Corps in its design, its legacy and whatever is as close to perfection as you will find in an institution that only gets bad or less than the ideal when you put people in it to run it. And he's like, I never thought of it in those kind of terms, but I can see, I can see your point. I had a great conversation with him and, and I carried that thought forward for a long time up until this day, because we can get lost, senior leaders, we can get lost in our perception of what the Marine Corps was during our period coming up. 
and we can relate it, try and relate it to those individuals that have, have filled our places as lieutenants, captains, majors, sergeants, staff sergeants, gunnies. But if we lose the fact that the Marine Corps that I knew as a lieutenant is long gone. It's in the dustpin of history. There were people that were right about it to make the things that I and my peers did appear and sound very noble and good for the, for the you know, contributing to the common good. But the fact is, is that period of time is gone. And the Marines that made up that organization at that time are gone. And there are new Marines with their own values, et cetera. I mean, we went from no gays to being a gay Marine Corps in the blink of an eye. And it was simply because the senior leadership was so out of touch. It took young Marines to tell us, this is not a problem. We got it. We're okay with it. You just sit back and we're going to show you how people should treat them, each other. I was actually going to bring that up as a comment about the institutional, the change in the generations. And you were saying, you know, you had to go back 22 years to the time you were a lieutenant colonel. There were two decades or two generations of Marines that came through. And and I remember very, very clearly when Don't Ask, Don't Tell changed. And I lived it. I was in the middle of it. I was a battery commander when the change came down. And you know what? That generation, uh, to include my generation, I'm in Generation X, they don't give a shit. That's right. They don't care. No, no, no. They don't care. And the Marine Corps is still out there do, accomplishing the mission, doing its thing. But for the most part, no one cares. Mm-hmm. No, you're absolutely right. No one right. cares. And the same thing with the women in the combat units. Look, if you can hike your load and do your thing, no one cares. Anyway, that's a great conclusion. I, I really appreciate you taking the time and talking about all of your experiences. This is so powerful, I think, for young leaders, enlisted Marines, even middle leaders, to be listening to the stories and the observations of, of career officers who are as successful as you were. You started out by talking about, you know, you grew up with the book of rules and following the books that following the book, then that's going to always lead you to the best solution. And you talked about when you were a forward observer in Beirut and how the Beirut bombing and being a 25 year old and making decisions that ultimately ended up not foreseen, of course, but with Marines killed and, and how decisions have to be made by leaders. And you made that point really clearly. You mentioned a book. I'm going to make sure that I put that in the, in the description notes. We spent some time talking about the platoon sergeant relationships and how important those are. And we we talked about being wrong and being wrong versus missing a detail, making a mistake, making a mistake on purpose with complete disregard, how those are all different things. And, and then you shared a very personal story about how you had an accidental discharge as a lieutenant and fast forwarding through your career, how that impacted your observation of other people's mistakes. And I found that very, I found that fascinating because then you told another personal story about how as a battalion commander, you had to have a serious conversation with a battery commander, but your experience with the accidental discharge really weighed into how you handled that situation. Then you started talking more about what it was like as a general officer, and you made this distinction about how leadership as a general officer, you're moving out of the tactical decision-making and into the institutional decision-making. And I thought that was that was really, really valuable. And the fact that one of the leadership lessons that you learned was that the more senior you become, the less it becomes about you, which seems obvious, but it was so great to hear it like that because I think that should be really resonating with people. And you talked about how you met that young welder at the 2nd AV Battalion and how you helped him re-enlist and, and made, some, made some changes to the policies there, but really impacted the life of one person because you were simply out doing what leaders do, which is walking the line. 
and looking and seeing what's going on out there in your command. And then you share that story about the recruiting story about the diversity plan and how it was a 20-year plan with the statistics on the females and setting the conditions for recruiting success through making quantifiable goals and creating that competition through that superior achieving status that happens on recruiting duty. And then, then we got into one of my favorite parts, which was, you know, the characteristics that cause leaders to fail. And you mentioned arrogance. And uh, I, you know, I challenge you to come up with something much more important than just say integrity, but arrogance. And, and that immediately just brought back a flood of memories of, of my memories of arrogant leaders. And I could relate to that and how junior officers get themselves in trouble with attention to detail. But that the one of the foils of both of the senior and junior Marines is the lack of empathy. And we spent a, a really good amount of time talking about empathy with scattered in there with some stories about how general officers get selected. But then you concluded with the you know, looking back through the lens of a general officer, what is that conventional wisdom that was most flawed? He had some really great thoughts there, but I wrote one word down, which was empathy. And in a, in a roundabout way, you brought it back to empathy, which is like empathy about these new generations that are coming in and empathy about people in general and how generations look at things differently. If you spend 40 years in the Marine Corps, you've got three or four generations of people that have come in behind you. And do you have the proper empathy as a senior leader that you developed as a junior leader in order to steward an organization so that it continues on for the next 60 years after you're gone. And just, you know, really, really fascinated about how that all came back full circle. And this was such a great interview. Really appreciate your time. I, I find these to be very valuable. And you were joking with me about how it's a hobby, but I just think that this is really valuable to get people's stories down in some sort of digital medium that people can listen to because 99% of the retired general officers aren't writing books about all the things they learned, but there's 150 lieutenants down at a TBS class right now that would love to hear any story that a general officer has to tell. So I really appreciate you taking the time today to, to go through some of your personal stories. And I could have spent two more hours with you. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, I could have too. It was, it's, it's been fun and I really appreciate it. And it brought back a number of memories. It is a very valuable venue and I think it'll be, you know, I think it'll be great for the purpose that you've intended, which is gives gives young individuals who want to be leaders, whether it's in military or business. I mean, I, I think this is important. If you know anybody mm -hmm. who runs a business school or is involved with a business school and stuff, you need to reach out and tell them to start, you know, they, they need to start listening to this podcast because it's important stuff. And I think, I think there is great value when people have complained about a lack of solid leadership in the business world. Now that I spend some time working with companies and stuff like it's not necessarily something that's it's not a huge problem but it's out there right got individuals could be much better leaders much stronger if they just had the opportunity to to apply just a few basic principles when it comes to leadership and understanding understanding how do you how do you do that and taking self out of it and being selfless at the top and understanding where people are coming from. Well, thank you so much for sharing those stories. I, I, leadership lessons are best shared through stories and leadership lessons are like evergreen trees. They never lose their leaves. So <laughs> I really appreciate you sharing your stories. I have a sneaking suspicion that this podcast will be very popular and people will be learning a lot from it. Well, so. thanks, Dave. I appreciate it. In the future, I mean, if, if, you got a, if you're interested in talking to somebody else um, and you need an intro, don't hesitate to let me know. I will definitely take you up on that. Thank you very much. Lieutenant General Mark Berlakis, uh, United States Marine Corps retired, also an artillery officer. So uh, we have that we have that connection in common. Thank you so much for your time and, and look forward to catching up with you again. Thanks, Dave. Semper Fidelis. Semper Fi.